I would, uh, I remember that I would call studios like Mil Milton Glaser, calling Milton Glaser, hello, may I speak with M Milton? And they would be like, who's speaking? And I am Matteo Bologna. I want to speak with Milton, please. And they would, of course, be very nice and try to tell me to fuck off in a very nice way. <laughs> and This podcast is brought to you by The Ultimate Lettering Quiz. Find out just how much you really know about letters by taking the quiz for free on martinafraud.com slash quiz. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flor, and in this show, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their paths and discuss the specific tactics they use to overcome challenges and succeed on their own terms. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Matteo Bologna. He is the founder of um, Muka Design, his multidisciplinary background in architecture, graphic design, illustration, and typography facilitated his early business successes and inspired the decision to create a New York-based branding and design agency. As a creative director, he oversees and inspires every project with energy, intellect, and a quick wit. Matteo is also the principal of the new Muka Design spin-off type foundry, Muka Typo, and is frequently asked to lecture about branding and typography around the world. You can find him on at Muka Design with double C, M-U-C-C-A Design on Instagram and online on mukadesign.com. On our conversation, Matteo shared what he learned from his wins and successes of decades working in the creative industries. We spoke about partnerships and building a team. We also touched on the challenges of moving from Italy to New York in the 90s and how he made his way into a different culture. He also shared his experience at downsizing his company and team and the benefits of turning what he calls an orchestra into a band. Enjoy this conversation with Matteo Bologna. Thank you so much, Matteo, for being in the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm great. And thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be interviewed by a friend. It looks like perfect, um, perfect solidification of nepotism. I'm chosen <laughs> because we are friends, not because I'm good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Totally. It's just because I wanted to have another chat with you and it's been a while. So I thought, hey, why don't we do it on the podcast? <laughs> But where is your beer? I have coffee because it's very early here for me. I have water because I have to run the podcast, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I wanted to start, you know, I, I've been reading a little bit about you. I've been doing a little bit of research besides You know, we, we have known each other for some years now and um, yeah, and we have been in contact. You, you've a, you have actually um, written the, forf the foreword for my book 
uh, even when when I asked you to do that, you didn't even know me yet. Like, or we just met once and you decided to say, hey, yes, I'm going to write the foreword for your book. But since then, we've been in touch and we've been good friends. And it helped yeah. that you gave me a lot of money to write the foreword. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so I I was reading a little bit about you before um, coming on to the podcast and You know, I want to touch today on different topics about your life as a business owner, but also as a creative. Um, so I want to, you know, touch on the fact that you have been, uh, as an Italian, born Italian, living in, in New York for <clears throat> for many years now. You run a, a design agency or a branding agency uh, for over 15 years. Is that correct? 20 okay it start of, officially muka design started in the last century i think yeah. like mid october 1999 so it's probably close to 21 years okay okay so you've been running a branding agency for t over 21 years and You came to New York as a graphic designer and you started from zero or you started your own business there, right? But before we get into that, because I have a lot of questions around, you know, how it is to run a business um, and all the challenges that this involves, but also how it is to move to a new country and um, learn a new language and live within a different culture from the one you were born in. And I want to start by... Yeah, the beginning, kind of where you were born. I read somewhere that you grew up in a, or you said yourself that you grew up in a design-aware family, which I wonder, like, what what makes a design-aware family? And you were also born in Milan, which is, I would say, is a design-aware city. <laughs> um, and I want to dig into that, and um, I want to ask you, what what do you think that these containers... Um, had an imprint in the way you see the world and, you know, your path as a creative. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I thought about this often, uh, especially living in, uh, in the United States. And I was going to my kindergarten, walking to my kindergarten, and in this street in Milan where I was living, actually, uh, called Corso Monforte, where there were a lot of product design, uh, let's say furniture uh, mm. stores. And so I was walking every morning, looking at the windows, you know, being a child. So I was just surrounded by all this fantastic design. I was born uh, in, the, uh, in the last year, uh, In the 60s, <laughs> damn it. Fuck it, I'm so fucking old. Uh, can I say fuck in this uh, podcast? Yeah, you already said it, so <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Mm, so, yes, I was very lucky because I was surrounded by this design that it really became kind of like, you know, second nature of, of my uh, way to judge things, to look at things, to look at design. And uh, so that's why actually I didn't, I stopped 
I quit school when I was in at the university because I already knew everything, of course, about design. Mm. That was a joke. <laughs> you have to turn on the laugh track. But. <laughs> okay, yeah, true. <laughs> we will add this in post-production. So, and what are the things that you remember from from your design-aware family? What are the things that you would say, like, hey, this this definitely was made my family design-aware? I, I don't know. I think my mother always was very uh, judging about things. She hated uh, stuff that were, like, too ornate. Uh, and uh, by default, I kind of, like, grew up with this kind of, like, modernist... Um, imprint where corners ends like with nothing there should not be molding or or ornaments mm -hmm. everything should be clean and uh, um, if it's not clean it's bad uh, which I mean we were not like you know modernist Taliban but that was kind of like how I was raised, my mother was buying, you know, modern furniture and this, so my house was modern. Of course, you say modern and then it's in the context of a um, city that has a lot of old buildings. So we were living in an old uh, apartment that was kind of like crumbling, which had all these moldings around the frames mm -hmm. of the doors. So it was the contrast between, you know, the the new and the old that um, made a little bit, you know, probably built my sensibility towards this design. I don't like things that are only super clean. I like to add a little bit of challenge to these dogmas, mm. like the dogmas of modernism. Though I have to yeah. say that, sorry <laughs> if I'm interrupting you, I'm in this host um, in this beautiful house for the people who are not they're listening to this they cannot see this fantastic background i'm in san diego right now i live in brooklyn but i'm a, at a friend's house and she has a house that is humongous uh, if you are on the internet this is the bathroom if you look at this <laughs> on, on youtube okay it's actually, for the people who are not looking at this, this is actually the living room. But the bathroom thing was a joke again. <laughs> thank you very much. Amazing. So I wanted to go back to, to one of the, thing, the things you just mentioned, which is that you dropped uh, college, right? So you actually went to art, art school and you decided to just drop and how was that um, decision? Yeah, my, my, my high school was uh, an art school and uh, when I was uh, 18 I enrolled in architecture um, college mm -hmm. and then I quit after three years because during those three years actually I started working as an illustrator for magazines. So it was really fun to do stuff that I like to do, which was illustrating and uh, actually getting paid for. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was kind of like magic, you know, you do something that you like and yeah. someone gives you money and a lot <laughs> of money for me at the time. Of course I was paid shit. I realized later I was underpaid. Yeah. 
but uh, so I quit uh, the studies of architecture because actually it was very difficult for me to retrain, retain all those informations. Later in my life, I learned mm -hmm. that I have ADD, attention deficit disorder, which totally makes sense. I was not able to, to remember anything because I was not able to concentrate. Reading a book mm. was a fucking nightmare for me. Mm. And drawing, it's an easier way for me to go through life. Or designing typefaces or doing graphic design things. So you did, you started, you know, that was your first touch point in the working world as a creative, like uh, doing illustrations, right? So what were the following steps? Because you run right now a, a successful branding agency, but I bet there were minor steps that you did before getting to that point where you decided to start an agency. So what were the, you know, the experiences in design or art that made you say like, hey, this is, this is my thing. This is something that I can imagine myself doing for a long time. Yeah, um, I think when people look at other people's life or people that they consider successful, they think, wow, Wow, they did. They made. They made it, mm. and uh, I don't know if I really made it. I think it's more like someone made you do it. Something made you do it. There's mm. a lot of things that uh, a lot of decision in my life that I just had to make because something was presented to me, mm. and uh, I don't think I really arrived where I am by making decisions and I'm sure I made a lot of decisions but it's not mm -hmm. like a big decision that helps to change something in a way that is drastic though I think maybe the biggest decision if I have to look at my past maybe I made two decisions that were mm -hmm. key the first one was to buy a, a Mac because I was starting, it, it, I bought it in a moment where I was uh, transitioning from illustrations to graphic design. I didn't know much about graphic design. I started buying graphic design annuals at a bookstore, the old annuals that were coming from United States. This was before the internet. So mm -hmm. is, it was before people in Italy were aware was was happening in the rest of the world. By looking at design annuals, actually, it was kind of like having a very slow internet connection because mm. by opening a design annual in 1885, you were looking at stuff that was finished, to, that has been finished to produce probably in 1883 and then sent mm -hmm. to the Um, annual uh, the award company uh, award um, institution makes these uh, books like the art directors club or the type directors club and then they would print it it would take one year to be printed and then they would reach Italy like three years ago after so by the time the idea happened to the time that it reached my young mind of excited designer or aspiring designer it took 
really probably three years. And uh, so I started being in love with this graphic design thing and I tried to do it in the traditional way with ink and rulers and French curves and I really sucked at that. <laughs> My mechanicals were terrible, uh, they were all dirty, the smudges of ink everywhere. And then I started looking for, I, it was the moment where you could hear that there was this thing called desktop publishing. Mm. And so I bought a computer, which actually I didn't buy a computer, I leased a computer because it was costing, I think I paid the equivalent of like $700 a month for a computer. Like, what? That's a bunch of money, actually. Computer and a printer. It was crazy, uh, crazy expensive. And, uh, and so I was paying for my computer with the money that I was making with my illustration job. Hmm. So you, you were actually breaking even. <laughs> yes. And uh, thanks to my mother, who was uh, very nice <laughs> and still had me as her roommate in the apartment where I had... I was sleeping, I was fed, and I actually was using one of the rooms as my office because we had this big apartment and uh, one, one room was my office. So I had an office, uh, sleeping quarters, and food. <laughs> and so this was uh, uh, the first big decision, buying a computer and then just because I had a computer, because the bar in Italy for uh, graphic design was very low, for product design was very high, mm. but graphic design, nobody... There were, like, bad teachers, bad... Um, it, it was really, really horrible, the graphic design mm. world at the time. And um, automatically, because I had a computer, because the quality was bad in Italy, I could be could say to people, hey, I'm a graphic designer. And they would be like, ah, he's a graphic designer. Yeah, he has a computer, of course. Mm -hmm. So I faked my um, profession. I pretended to be someone that I actually didn't. I wasn't because I really sucked at graphic design. <laughs> so I, what I was doing, I would copy the stuff that I was, was seeing in these mm -hmm. annuals. And little by little, I became slightly better. Of course, I had holes, terrible holes in, in my knowledge about graphic design because everything was learned by making things. And I made mm -hmm. huge mistakes. Like, I designed a brochure for Apple Computer when I was like 26 and I felt like the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> and uh, for a trade show... And uh, the guy from Apple called me after the trade show was finished a couple of months later and said, hey, Matteo, we need more brochures. Uh, can you tell the printer to, can, you or, can we order more? And I said, yes, I was so proud of myself. And then the guy before hanging up says, but Matteo, can you make sure that this time page five comes after page four? <laughs> And I was like, okay, okay, I'll make sure that 
this happens. Thank you very much. Bye. And I was like, fuck, I'm such an idiot. I didn't even know how to prove uh, before going on press. It, I was a total ignorant. So and computer that, was the first thing. The second that, that, that's thing, thing. Uh, was uh, moving to the United States. Mm. So those were like the big decisions. Oh, yeah. I have so many questions about this. And before we dig into that, I want to talk a little bit about um, that one experience that you had starting your own um, design studio with, a, I think, two other partners. Because you, you right now you run, as I said, a branding agency in New York called Muka Design, which has been in business for decades. And... You know, that makes a very successful project in your life. You have been running this studio or this design agency for a long time. And, you know, it's a relationship you have had for uh, over two decades. We can call it a very successful relationship. Uh, but I bet that there were other things or other experiences in the past that were not as successful, right? That also allow you to learn and to, you know, take next steps that were more informed. Um, so what I want to ask you, I, I would like you to share what was this experience that you had starting an agency or a design studio in Milan. And I want to ask you specifically, what were the things that didn't work well? Um, so you started this, this design agency with two friends or two partners. Um, at some point you decided to split or to stop that project. And I want to ask you, like, what were the things that didn't work well? And what were the things that you learned from that experiences that, or from that experience in particular that you took into your next experiences? Yes. I, when I was in Milan, after doing this uh, freelance illustration work and doing buying the computer, and then I started working for a packaging design agency as a designer, and uh, thanks to the fact that I knew how to use this computer, it made me look cool, uh, which was, I used it to, a, to my advantage, of course, and this knowledge. And uh, I ended up with one of those colleagues at the studio. We decided to leave the studio. And after a few months, we started working together. Uh, And then we had another partner, so it was three designers. Mm -hmm. We had no, no idea. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Probably they had better ideas that they were very, um, they wanted success. They wanted to, they, they had this idea of being cool and uh, uh, successful. I was most, uh, mostly probably more interested in the work itself, in doing something cool, something different, something. So I was more probably uh, the guy who wanted to make things. They wanted to be, they, they were looking more to be feeling about, they wanted to look cool. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there was a, um, I don't know, we didn't have, let's say, we didn't have the same objectives in life. I was also probably not uh, 
very good at communicating my thoughts. Uh, and uh, we ended up at a point where probably we would have happily murdered each other, which was not a good thing. And uh, so we decided to close the company, mm. which was great because uh, mm -hmm. I was faced myself with a decision, okay, should I open another company in Milan where people don't pay you on time, they consider graphic designers as just, you know, kind of like a plumber who is coming to fix a little thing, or I go somewhere else who are more interested of the work that gets uh, made, which was uh, United States because all the work that I was doing was inspired by what was happening in the States at that, at that particular time, period of historical period. And uh, also I wanted to be able to read all those books that I was buying from United States because I didn't speak <laughs> English. So I said, okay, maybe I should go to the States, learn about English a little bit more, how to speak in English, which apparently, as you can tell from this podcast, I never learned. Um, and kind of like live, being in the place where all the things that I like were coming from. So I moved to the States and uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who then became my wife, her idea was just, okay, let's go there for a few months and then we come back. My idea, my hidden agenda was to stay, and actually I prevailed. And um, so I ended up staying in, in the United States, which was great, because instead of considered just kind of like a plumber, you're considered like an important part of the business of a company, the graphic design. Mm -hmm. It's not an expense, it's an investment. So let's go down this this uh, this topic the the fact of you moving to the US. Uh, so you moved to the US in the 90s, right? 1994. And I want to touch over this topic because I think that a lot of things have happened since 1994. A lot of people has moved across the globe in the last years, the world is starting to get used to the idea of people migrating or the idea of people living in other cities other than the ones they were born in. So I can imagine that the scenario in the 90s was very different when it comes to someone from Italy coming to live to the US. Um, and I want to ask you, what were the first challenges that you faced when you... Um, when you moved to the U.S., um, considering that you were an Italian, not speaking the language, and um, yeah, you were a graphic designer, which probably opened a lot of um, of doors for you, or actually made you, you know, open the doors of a certain community for you. Uh, but what were the challenges for you when you first came to the U.S.? I, I think there were a lot of challenges. Uh, 
now I'm thinking about it, so I'm starting to laugh a little bit because what I was coming from Milan, which is a very, it was a very small world for, especially for the graphic, in the graphic design world, where you could pick up a phone, call someone in the studio and talk to the principal. And probably actually the principal would pick up the phone. You didn't even have to go through uh, um, receptionists. And I would, uh, I remember that I would call studios like Milton Glaser, calling Milton Glaser, hello, may I speak with Milton? And they would be like, who's speaking? And I am Matteo Bologna. I want to speak with Milton, please. And they would, of course, be very nice and try to tell me to fuck off in a very nice way. <laughs> and, and actually there was this thing that was uh, very fun, funny for me to think about it right now. There, wa there was this thing that was called the drop-off day. And I, and they would tell me, our drop-off day is Monday at uh, in the afternoon, and I would be like, oh, thank you very much. I would, I remember hanging up, and then calling them back and say, excuse me, what is drop-off? Because I had no idea that. <laughs> There was this practice where all the designers who wanted to work for certain studios or magazines or agencies, they had to drop off their portfolio on Monday afternoon after two o'clock at the reception and you would pick it up two or three days later or the day after, after the art director in that place would look at the portfolios. So. Every day, every week, these studios had the portfolio day where they would see portfolios from candidates mm -hmm. and uh, go through the portfolio and eventually hire or um, talk to these candidates to see if they were mm -hmm. good match for their firms. It was so weird. Definitely pre-internet. So you sort of brought the your like the kind of mindset or the way that the things work back home into this new experience in the US right so you were just operating as if you were in Milan yeah absolutely I, and as a matter of fact I started to meet mostly with uh, designers who who also spoke Italian so one of the first people that I met in uh, in uh, in New York was Louise Feely, who's, who was mm -hmm. my design idol. She's, mm -hmm. She still is my design idol. And uh, she was super nice. And for me, it was like a great experience. I started learning about studios by meeting people who would speak Italian. Mm -hmm. So uh, through Louise, I learned a lot of things about how to interview and doing things uh, in, in New York. So, yes, the challenges was language, which, of course, brought me to meet a lot of people who were aware of the Italian world, the Italian language. And then um, work permit, actually, that was, I realized later that was after a few weeks that that was a challenge. 
thankfully I was able to work uh, little detail a little detail <laughs> yeah it was a little detail I didn't know you needed I, because I went there I was like okay let's just try and see what the fuck is gonna happen mm. and uh, after a while I was able to find uh, someone who um, a company who wanted to hire me and sponsor me mm. and, and so I got a, a visa which was great mm. And it's interesting because sometimes this this attitude or this mindset of like, well, I'm just going there and see what, you know, how it turns out sometimes saves you from worrying about all of the things that you need to nail before doing something. Because if you would have known that upfront, you may have not done it, you know, like you may have said like, hey, you know, it's better here home. Like I can find my way in my city. And sometimes not knowing the things that it involves doing something, sometimes it's helpful. Ignorance was a bliss, I have to say, because I, I was really cocky in a certain way. I thought I was cool and actually was probably a shit designer. And, uh, but this ignorance really helped me a lot mm. because... I went to, I opened doors that I probably should not even have, I would have not considered to open if I knew what they were before. Fear mm. would have uh, would have stopped me to do certain things. Yeah. And you know what? I want to ask you a little bit about this because if there's something I really admire you for and that I find really great about you is that you are, how can I say this? Like you're very much yourself. Like you're beautiful, handsome, talented, <laughs> but you're also very much yourself. You know, you're, you know, you're funny, you're fun to hang out with. You are uh, cocky, as you said, you are very honest. And I would say that also, you are a little bit of the cliche of an Italian, you know, if you allow me. And this is for <laughs> the people on the internet. They don't see on, on, on YouTube. They can see this for the people in the audio world. I'm raising a middle finger. Thank you very much <laughs> for putting me in a category. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, but it's like. But it's, it's funny because the first time that I met you, you were speaking about this Italian that um, that is living in New York. And you speak about yourself, about, you know, like, I'm this Italian living in New York and coming with all these comments and these jokes at people. And sometimes they are a little bit like wondering, like, who is this guy about, you know? And I, I really I really admire that uh, from you, that you, you managed to stay in a way true to yourself and I so that you understand where I'm coming from with my question I feel that you know I'm also an immigrant living in a different place that were the place where I was born I was born in Argentina I moved to to Berlin over 10 years ago and I know that I know that in order to match this new culture, which I'm totally compatible with, you know, otherwise it would be really hard for me to live here. But in order to match this culture, I feel that a lot of the things or the things I used to do or say are a little bit toned down or I kind of, 
you know, in order to be accepted, I sort of blended into the way the things work here. And, you know, just to name a silly thing, but I used to dress up a lot more colorful than I do right now. And I don't know if that's due to the fact that I live here in Berlin or because I just, you know, I just became different throughout time or I like other things um, as I grow older. But I know, I can imagine that the environment had an impact on me and the way I used to do things. And in your case, it seems that that didn't really happen, that you kept on having your own personality and you brought your own personality and your own culture and your, your own way of doing things onto your experience and your life in New York. So I wanted to ask you, how did you, how do you see this? If you also feel that you kept, you know, you pull it through or you feel that, um, that you blended into this new environment and how did you keep, how did you manage to keep that personality and that way of doing things throughout your life in New York, throughout the 20 years, over 20 years that you've been living there? Okay, I think, first of all, you asked me too many questions and my brain already don't know. I have to choose one of those <laughs> and, I, and I'll be like a politician and I'm going to answer something that you didn't ask probably. <laughs> uh, But I'll do that not because I'm a politician, but because I really don't remember any of the questions that you just asked me. Uh, but uh, I do you need me to refrain? No, no, do you need no, me no. to refrain? Okay, cool. I more or less know what you're talking about. And yes, yes, we're sharing similar experiences, though probably I don't know. I feel always very insecure about everything. Mm. So I the first the thing that I'm mostly insecure, of course, is the language. Mm. And uh, it goes, it's not specific to, to English, it's specific to um, being able to, um, to talk about things and say things that make sense to the other person mm -hmm. and feel mm. that I need to be intelligent with my answers. Um, So my, I try to use my uh, deficiencies into advantages. So the fact mm -hmm. that I didn't speak English very well or that I still don't speak English very well, I use it a little bit as a weapon. I use it, mm -hmm. you know, as a kind of like, oh, you're so cute, you speak with this Italian, uh, <laughs> this Italian uh, accent and... Uh, So sometimes I play with that because it, it serves me in certain ways. Sometimes it totally deserves me because I don't know how to say certain things. And to go to a certain world, I to world, I need to go through big loops. Mm. Um, so, mm, yes, of course, I, I have a personality, I have opinions, I have ideas, and I use it in a way that maybe is more expressive that that Americans would do or probably you probably Germans thinks that you should go to an asylum because you're expressing <laughs> feelings <laughs> I'm sure there is someone there ready to take you to 
a psychiatric ward. Oh my God, this woman, she is using feelings. Can you believe it? My husband will love this conversation with you. <laughs> I know. Why did you say you love me? What is that? And the, by the way, that was my German accent. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah, so of course, I'm, I use my Italianity, uh, Italian hood, Italian whatever, uh, to my advantage. And of course, you know, that's, that's part of my um, heritage and that's what I use to design, that's what I use to communicate. And you mentioned that you had, which I can totally relate to, that you had this, you still have this language challenge or this, you know, you, you, f you can feel the boundary really soon when you speak in English. In your case, I can totally relate to that when I speak German. Nevertheless, you carry on conversations and workshops with clients. So how does this integrate in your life? Because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a, a problem, you know, considering that you are the, the founder and the director of a branding agency, which is not like any other creative agency out there. In a branding agency, you need to speak about concepts, you need to, to speak about strategy, you need to elaborate. It's not... You know, it's not only the images that are doing the work and are telling the story. You just need to back it up with ideas, right? So how do you, how do you still put it through? Language is not uh, just a sequence of words. And uh, it's, it's really about um, cultural, expressing a cultural experience. So... Mm. For me, at the beginning, when I was starting learning English, it wasn't just about learning the words, but understanding how those words are put in a, in a context. That's why I think I always say that I learned English by watching Seinfeld. <laughs> uh, and uh, because learning it just from a dictionary doesn't help you. Every... Uh, Every word has a cultural reference, and mm. the more you are immersed in the culture that you're living in, the better your mm. language skills will be. So mm. one thing that I really tried to do as much as I could was really to understand popular culture. Mm. And I think by knowing that, you're more able to, to not only to express yourself, but to talk to your clients about what's around, what's going on, and understand their cultural um, background and, and their needs. Of course, my heritage is um, different from the one of my client, which mm. is often a good weapon for them to use me, mm. because I can see things Uh, and my colleagues, I, a lot of my colleagues are not from United States, um, to use it in a way that is, helps to see the world from different points of view and so to contribute in a way that is actually how things should be, not everything. Mm. When you say something, it's American, of course, it means that it's 
coming from 3,000 different cultures. Mm-hmm. Because America is a place of immigrants, even mm-hmm. though apparently no, a lot of people don't want immigrants because they're still in their jobs. Mm-hmm. In my case, I give jobs to a lot of Americans also. So mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think, and I'm, and by the way, I'm an immigrant. Sorry, this was a little political joke, um, but yes, I think we being a foreigner in in a country that is not yours your own you learn to you learn things you need to learn things about that country if you mm. want to produce work in that country mm. and i want to talk a little bit about your work with muka which is your branding agency i remember that when we met in 2016, I think, um, you were downsizing Muka. You were splitting up from your business partner, partner at that time and leaving your $30,000 per month office in Manhattan. Do I remember that correctly? That you, 15,000 is still, like I remember these five figures in my in my brain, like, Yeah, and at that time you were moving to a smaller office in in Manhattan with a smaller team. And when you told me this, I remember you were really burned out and you were really exhausted by all of this process. And and also this is why you also decided to downsize. No? And at that time you were reading this book or you had just read this book called The E-Myth by uh, Michael Gerber, which you recommended to me and I read later on and it really changed or had an impact on my business. I would say that there's a before and after that book, um, really. So I really appreciate you for giving me that book and having, you know, allowing me to to change the steps or the things I was doing in my business. I will add this book to the show notes for those listening. And you told me that actually downsizing, according to that book at at least, downsizing is not the wise thing to do. Um, And, you know, like sort of like the book said that downsizing a business is like, you know, dying, kind of letting that, that business die. But it seems that it have, has, has worked for you. Like after five years, you know, 2016, after seven years, um, you know, Muka is a very healthy agency with a very stable team and you keep on going. So I wanted to ask you, what, what, what was this, that, this process like? What was, you know, this process of downsizing and what are your biggest takeaways from that? Because before you you answer this question because because i feel that in the present world the only path possible is to grow to always grow and in your case when i look at your experience you decided to downsize and that seems like a much better or healthier scheme for you and i want to ask you how that process was and and what did you learn from that? Or what are your biggest takeaways? Okay, I think there's two uh, topics here that we can mm. talk about. One is about, about partnerships. Mm. And uh, uh, 
the fact that probably I was just a terrible business partner uh, and uh, I was not very able to I was not able to maintain a healthy partnership um, and uh, why can I can I ask yeah, you I, why I, I I think I was not a good partner kind of like you know a life partner I was not able mm. to to listen to the other person in a in a constructive way and uh, I think I made a lot of mistakes on my, on my end to uh, to to work on this business partnership when I moved to the states I blamed a lot of the breaking up of my uh, company in Italy to my business partners. Uh, of course, later you learn about all your mistakes and the things that probably did wrong that I should have not done. Or, uh, and then I, you make another partnership with someone else and then mm. you make the same mistakes. Mm. Or maybe it's slightly different mistakes. Uh, and uh, I don't really, I, I'm, I'm sure there's, I mean, I, there's too many mistakes that I made or the other person made that I can list here in this podcast, mm. but it's, you know, partnerships are very difficult. Business partnership mm -hmm. are difficult. And uh, I probably was asking too much from the other person and I was probably not listening the other person uh, in the, my partner and I was expecting too much from from her and uh, yeah probably didn't I was a shitty partner mm. apologies for that and uh, that's why when we split up I ended up not Asking, not having any more partners. And the big change, I think, was from, you know, having this, this very expensive and fancy office in, uh, in Soho, in Manhattan, to then sharing space with another company, felt a little bit, I felt kind of, it felt, it hurt, actually, felt like, mm. oh my God. I'm not as cool as I used to be. But the truth is, you know, we were able to still produce the same amount of work. The work was really good. Actually, I think the work became way better. And mm -hmm. my team was becoming smaller. It was easier to communicate. And uh, it was like from directing an orchestra that was very dysfunctional to uh, playing and working with a band that has amazing musicians, still amazing musicians, all the musicians that I always had in my orchestra, orchestra first, and then the band, we were all always very good. But now, when being a smaller band, it's, it was really incredible. You could have people that you just say, okay, let's play this song, and automatically 
everyone knows how to play this song without mm-hmm. any directions. So the team now, it's incredible. And the most amazing thing is that the team is dispersed all over the world. Mm-hmm. Our design director now works from New Zealand. Uh, two of our designers are traveling the world and now they're in Colombia. We have a collaborator that I never seen in person mm-hmm. from Mexico. And so it's fantastic. We, we are still, and nothing changed actually. Everything works uh, beautifully. I love this idea or this concept of looking at your team as an orchestra. And it makes a lot of sense that, um, or like as a band, I would say, because an orchestra becomes more like a huge uh, monster or a huge amount of people that you have to manage and uh, lead. And having like a smaller team, even when they are working remote, sounds more like a, a band you described it perfectly where you know everyone knows how how the other one plays what are the things that they tend to do and it kind of works all together right it's fantastic i it's it's like every new assignment is like a new song yeah. Yeah. we know how to play that song everyone knows mm-hmm. how to play even if it's a new song everyone knows mm-hmm. how to to the bass line, the drums, uh, the, the harmony, and the arrangements. Um, my job is just to say, hey, let's play this with a little bit more intensity mm-hmm. here. Let's, let's tone it down there. But everyone, it's so good. It's incredible. I should actually and, and stop working and let them do everything. <laughs> yeah, why not? Which, which actually, sure. most of the time I do. Amazing. That's great. And um, I wonder how much of the, you know, the, this this book that we were speaking about uh, of Michael Gerber, um, the, the E-Myth, speaks a lot about implementing systems in your business, you know, which is something that creatives tend to re- um, kind of not have in the work they do. Um, and it's really interesting um his approach or the approach of the author on how, you know, you could actually systematize any business of any kind. And that really changed my mind in terms of looking at my business as a set of systems. And it allowed me to systematize a lot of things. And I wonder how much of that you have done in your business to to have this band sounding like you want it to sound without being you know, with, without the need to be micromanaging all of the things they do. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, that you that I gave you that book, and apparently you read it through the end because I didn't. <laughs> uh, but uh, I actually no, actually I think I, I you know what I I opened it again a couple of four or five months ago because I mm-hmm. really thought it was a really good book. And then I thought I didn't read it to the end, but actually I did. Um, mm-hmm. the, yes, we have systems. I think that mm-hmm. book helped me to understand, you know, how systems are important. And the truth, we always had systems in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we did, we were able to kind of like really making sure that every time we have a project, we follow this, that, that system. And... 
if we don't, the few times that we happen not to follow those systems, we see that there are points of, um, that are not really working. The, the project doesn't go as it's supposed to go if mm -hmm. we don't follow the system. It, it, the results are more difficult to achieve in a non-painful way. Can you give an example of how, what those systems are or some of those systems are for those listening? Because I know that, you know, our listeners are creatives or illustrators or, you know, designers. And I know that not everyone is acquainted with the idea of having a system. So what, what, how does a system look like in a design business? Okay, for us, because we do, um, we work on branding, which is a very wide term, can be interpreted in, in a million different ways. Uh, but let's say for every project, we need to have a part where we really understand our clients and their clients' needs. So doing, uh, we usually do workshop with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a couple of days workshop where we really try to understand uh, the project and uh, their, their needs, uh, try to define their goals and uh, really, and sometimes question their goals. So mm -hmm. these this, this workshops are structured um, to ask questions so that often the cl client uh, really understand how to give us the brief better. And mm -hmm. from there, we then create this thing that we call the brand platform that I'm not going to go into details here, but it's something that we end up uh, giving the client and helps them to really understand what we are going to deliver and so that all our expectations are on the same plane. And uh, it really helps everyone to go with a very smooth uh, project. So mm -hmm. whenever we present something, because the brand platform is being agreed with amongst us, there's no one who comes and says, no, I don't like it. Mm. And you don't know why they don't like it. If they don't like it, we need to go back to this brand platform and say, hey, you don't like it because it doesn't match one of these points of this platform or because this morning you were capped woke up cranky. If you woke up cranky, fuck you. Let's go back to what we agreed to the project. The project says that this is what we are going to do. And if we want to sway from this, let's do it. You have to pay us more yeah. because we are changing the project. And it's not anymore what we all were working towards. That's a great way of you know, when it comes to creativity, there's so much back and forth and ideas flowing around and brainstorming and all of this. And that's a great way of like having a structure and like putting numbers on things and putting names on things and um, kind of having some sort of a structure that keeps you accountable yourself and the client. And I think that's so important for you to understand what, what's the work that needs to be done, but also for the client to understand like, hey, where are we heading towards, right? And if we decide to head towards a different direction, then then we need to 
to shift a couple of things, not only the kind of work we are doing, but also the kind of money you will be paying for, for that work. It's a, it's a very good way to keep everyone on the same objective. And uh, it helps us whenever, whenever we always say that once we have a very strong brand platform, it's very easy for everyone to make decisions because mm-hmm. if you don't have an answer, there's a mm-hmm. problem that is coming up. Mm-hmm. You go back to this brand platform and read it and an answer is already there in some way. So it helps everyone to move forward with the project in a very healthy way and maintain the core of the brand strong. That's great. And, you know, similarly in the work I do, um, I keep a certain briefing or a certain structure for a briefing where all the, you know, different items are um accounted for so you know what do we want to communicate or what is you know what's the atmosphere we want to convey and you know this is sort of like the structure from which the work is done and it's clear for both the client and the the illustrator or the designer in my case um and it 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 keeps also the things clear and kind of like the conflicts away right yeah, there's if no everything conflict. is clear yeah if everything yeah. has been agreed and you smooth all the, all the angles and you know where you're going it's it's beautiful and the, the few times that we skip that part is when then we have to go through hoops trying mm-hmm. to convince the client or trying to explain the client mm-hmm. why those things are in that way if everything becomes too um instinctual and you see if if that morning i wake up and i like pink that in that particular day i'm gonna show the client pink and the client would say why do you want to why is this pink and i would say because i like it this doesn't really work because Mm -hmm. i mean i may be right that pink is the right color but if there's no not a conversation to get to that color to give a, a meaning, a semantic meaning to that color that uh, mm-hmm. is related to what the audience of this particular brand needs. If there's no need for the color, it's just, you know, me, it's just an ego trip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> totally. the ego trips are not serving clients, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And before we, we wrap up the conversation, I want to ask you, and this is something I asked to a lot of our guests, which is like, you know, based on your experience and your own path, coming from Italy to New York and starting your own agency and having all of these things or experiencing all of the things that you experience in between of working as an illustrator, buying your first computer and faking it until you made it. <laughs> as a designer um what would you say to someone that is just studying what are the things that perhaps to narrow down the question what are the things that they could focus on first of course try to know your craft very well Mm. craft uh, definitely it's very important because i'm of course, you can fake everything. And, and the thing is, you don't need to be perfect now. You will never be perfect, ever. You'll be good enough. Mm. And uh, 
even if you see someone or work of someone else and you think it's perfect, perfect it's fantastic, uh, I'm sure they are very doubtful about their output. So mm-hmm. everyone poops in the same way. We are all the same people. So don't think that there is someone that is much better than you. You can definitely, mm-hmm. if you really want to become great and better, you can. Mm-hmm. Just uh, do the work and try to so, have so. fun while you do it. Don't do stuff that you don't like. Quit your job if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. I love that. So focus on your craft. First, quit your job if you don't like it. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Mateo, it's been great. And lastly, how, where can listeners find you? Um, it's okay. We, I think we have an Instagram account, which <laughs> I stopped doing my personal um, long time ago, but we have Muka Design at Muka Design, and uh, there is also our type Mucha found with double double C M U C C A Design, and then there is Muka Typo M U C C A T Y P O, which is our type foundry, um, where you can mostly see announcement for uh, my type classes. Uh, mm. I often give uh, uh, type workshops, type design workshops, and uh, I mostly use that channel to advertise those classes. Amazing. So I'm going to add all of this to the show notes so that listeners can find you. Thank you so much for being here today, for chatting oh, with me. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're doing this. You're amazing. I don't know how you can do all this kind of stuff, plus kids, plus chairman, husband. How it's, I don't know. You're amazing. I'm I just pay to a lot of people <laughs> to do the work for me. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. How many, how many, how many people are in your studio now? Oi, we are we are also a remote team, like mostly. So we have our senior designer with him. We work often every day, almost like side by side. Um, then we have a project manager. We also have our social media uh, person. We have someone doing our email marketing. So we have a lot of collaborators that contribute to the studio. Um, I also have... You know, my husband that supports me whenever I need to do a certain project or um, our babysitter that is a key uh, person key, in our life. So, yes. Yeah, so oftentimes I think I can really resonate with what you were saying before that, you know, people tend to see other people for their successes and they forget that all, all of the steps that Bring, brought that person to that point and I think the same happens um, to me that you know oftentimes people see the output that I have but there's a lot of people involved and there's a lot of things that or systems in place so that these things 
run smoothly and, you know, they can happen actually. And it took a lot of years to put those systems in place so that nowadays we can have the amount of output that we have. But yeah, I'm not alone in this. And as you are not alone in your own band playing your music, right? So you know that it, it takes a lot of people to, or it takes some people to have that kind of output. And it's very uh, interesting how you are the perfect example of putting those systems in place and know that those systems are not forever. Things are mm -hmm. changing. The system is designed so that it can be flexible because you can do one thing and then because of the cir changing circumstances, things are changing. So I, I was when I saw that you were doing a podcast, I was like, obviously, she knows how to pivot things and she understands yeah. how her business should work. It's amazing. Thank you for your encouragement and thank you today for having this conversation. Thank you everyone for listening, those watching on YouTube. Um, I'm going to add all of the contacts and uh, social media handles and website of um, Mateo and Muka Design on our show notes so that you can get to know his work and all of the things that he does, which is also pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank Mateo. you very much for having me. Ciao, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye. <laughs>